0: Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wife, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Second reading from Titus, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's come to um, Titus chapter 2 on page 1198. If you have that open in front of you, you'll find that helpful. Thank you, Joel, for leading us in prayer for God to speak through his word as we look at this. I don't know if these... Words are words you've heard people say, if the church does not change its teaching on this issue, it will slide further and further into irrelevance and lose the next generation. I think we hear that about a range of different issues at different times, and we're hearing it especially at the moment about issues around marriage and sexuality in the wider church. If you're wondering what St. John's Downshire Hill will say and do about what came out of General Synod, about same-sex blessings this week, if you've been following the news, well, we're not gonna make kind of knee-jerk reaction responses, but along with many other churches, both in London and nationally, we will be considering very carefully um, how, how to respond. But over the last few weeks, we have been looking at this letter that Paul writes to Titus. And we've met Titus on Crete, facing similar questions for himself and the Christians there with him. Remember, Crete is very much like London. It's not an easy place to be a Christian. It's not a place where you think it's going to be easy to tell people about Jesus or expect people to respond positively when you do. And so far, Paul has said to Titus, you need to stick with the truth that leads to godliness. Preach that message. That is what is going to change the culture. But against that, we saw last time, there are those who have a different view and whose approach to influencing the culture is simply to become more like the culture. Their solution to their perceived irrelevance is simply to accommodate the message. We saw last time that their gospel message is be yourself. In Paul's words, it's about merely human commands, verse 14 of chapter 1 playing catch up with what the world is already saying and this contrasts with what Jesus said he didn't Jesus did not say be yourself he said deny yourself which is deeply challenging for any follower of Jesus not just those of one particular identity or sexuality or whatever deeply challenging for anyone to hear that message deny yourself now over the last few weeks as we've been working through titus in these morning services i've had some really stimulating conversations with people following the sermons and i hope that will continue and i hope that uh, maybe you've been finding that for yourself that you've been able to talk with others uh, about issues that arise from these things but but last time one of the things that came up was how christians are meant to deal with having such a challenging message in a world that doesn't want to hear it so you're at work and people have discovered that you're a Christian and you sense immediately that something's changed in your relationship with them or someone asks you straight up about your views on the hot topics in the culture wars and what you want to do is you want to give a careful and nuanced answer that reflects your Christian faith but is compassionate and is able to, um, uh, to, to be explaining what you believe really carefully. But they're not interested in that. They want it black and white. Yes or no? Are you for or against? And you're forced to say what they don't want to hear. And now you're wondering, will they, will they ever listen to anything else I say about anything? Will they listen to anything I say about Jesus or Christianity? It feels like the door is completely shut. And so we're back to facing that basic pressure that many people feel. Surely if we don't change our message, people won't ever listen to us. And that question is what drives this next section that we heard read just now from Titus chapter 2. And in response to that question of whether and why anyone will listen, Paul is clear. The solution is not to accommodate. The solution is not to adopt the be yourself gospel it is instead this and you can see this on the back of the notice sheet as well if you want to follow it is let the world see that Jesus makes you different let the world see that Jesus makes you different this is the one big thing that we need to see this morning from these verses before we get into these very specific instructions that we see in verses 1 to 10 in chapter 2 which are going to raise various questions for us Just notice that three times, Paul uses the words, so that. So verses 4 and 5, teach the younger women these things. Uh, And then verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 8, teach these things so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 10, slaves need to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. So do you see what he's saying here? Can you see before the, the what of what he's saying, see the why of why he's saying it. The point of these detailed instructions to different groups of people is so that the world sees that Jesus makes you different. In older translations, verse 10 is translated as adorn the gospel. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Don't worry if you haven't. But when we adorn something, we we decorate it to show it off. We take something that is already very beautiful and we adorn it to show off how beautiful it is. As we keep seeing, this is right in line with Paul's big message in this letter. The truth of the gospel will lead to godliness. So verse 1. Chapter 2 Teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. That is the point. Let the world see that Jesus makes you different. And so at a basic level, that the beginning of an answer to our question about why people will ever listen to us of our message is so unpopular in our culture, is that they will be won over by the way that we live. They will be won over by the way that we live. That is what Paul is saying here. So the friend in the office will say. I don't really like what I think you think, I don't get how you can think that, but do you know, I've never met someone with so much integrity, I've never met someone I can trust as much as I know I can trust you and frankly I'm confused by that because the world around me tells me you're a bigot or whatever it is, but in person as I get to know you, I discover that you're anything but that in the way that you act towards me and other people. And at that point, at least humanly speaking, the door opens for them to ask you, can you explain this to me? What is going on? That is the big picture of what is happening in these verses. But as we begin to look at the details, we probably then have to do a bit of a reality check. Because as we read through these verses, we hear things that in the 21st century ring all kinds of alarm bells. If you were paying attention, I'm sure little alarm bells went off in your head at various points. So there is the fact that in the first place, men and women are dressed separately in these verses. Can you still do that in 2023? There are some instructions to younger women in verse 5 that might raise some eyebrows. To be busy at home, to be subject to their husbands. Is this straight out of the handmaid's tale? You know what that is? You know, what possible relevance can this have to us in London in 2023? And then, and then, while we're still reeling from that, we come to slaves, and we think, "There you go, there you go. This is the proof that you need, all the proof that you need that the Bible was a book of its time, but we've moved on." You know what? Because why doesn't Paul completely condemn slavery at this point outright? and The fact that he doesn't, oh, that we well, that means we don't need to take him or other biblical writers seriously, or other contemporary moral issues like same-sex marriage so do you see we need to do this kind of reality check so let's, let's say a few things at this point it's helpful from the outset to get a view of what a household was in the first century it's far more than what we think of today so it's not just a place where you kind of go to eat and sleep and get some privacy and shut the world out in between going out into the world to work it's kind of what a 21st century household it's what we sort of think of it, is much more, in those days, a public place. So maybe your household is a bakery or a clothes maker or whatever, and, and you know, you are literally living above the shop. So what does, busy, what does being busy at home mean? It doesn't mean you're the one who does the washing up. It means you are working in the, the business of your home which is very much out there in the world, not behind closed doors where no one can see it. And in fact, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he specifically addresses an issue there in Ephesus, where the particular women in that place and in that church were getting involved in gossip and meddling in each other's business. And in that letter, he's saying, literally, mind your own business. And there may well be something similar here, which leads him to say this kind of thing. But either way, we're not meant to read in some kind of 1950s stereotype or whatever it is. It's not a value judgment either way on work inside or outside the home as we think of it today for men and women. What Paul is saying is live out the gospel by working hard. And when he says at home, he means in a place where lots of people are going to see what you're doing. Because that is your workplace. Now, we'll come back to that next line about being subject to husbands a little bit later on. But what about slaves? What do we make of this? Well, again, it's important to understand when we hear slaves, we think North Atlantic slave trade and racism and brutality. But uh, first century slavery was not a picnic. It was not a, a great thing either. But it wasn't quite like that image that we have of 18th century, 19th century brutality. So 2,000 years ago, slaves made up anything between 15 and 30% of the population. It wasn't a racist thing, it wasn't done on racist lines. It was something you could enter and people often did enter voluntarily as a way of getting out of debt, sort of signing themselves over as a bond bond servant to, to somebody in order to pay off the debt that they got into. And it was also something that it was much easier to get yourself out of by buying your freedom in various ways. And that was much more common then, 2,000 years ago, than it became later in the brutality of the North Atlantic slave trade. It's important also to be aware that as we just focus in on this one little place in the New Testament where Paul is, you know, in passing speaking about slaves, the Bible does say other things about slavery. In particular, in, in, again in Paul's first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10, if you want to make a note and look at it later, Paul condemns slave trading. That is something the New Testament is clear, is wrong. And no matter what you hear, we hear a lot of discussion about these things today, about how we moved on from the Bible. No, that it's because the Bible itself is clear that the trading of human beings as slaves is wrong. Okay, so whatever else the Bible is saying about slaves at various points, we need to understand that. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul tells, and you can make a note of verse 21 to look up another time. Paul tells, if you can, he tells slaves, if you can seek your freedom, do so. He doesn't think slaves should remain in in, in slavery for as long as they um for the for the rest of their lives. He says, if you have the opportunity, do of course seek your freedom so the point is the seeds for what became the movement to end slavery in the west in the early 19th century were planted here in the new testament and it was christians who picked up the ball and ran with it and and did what happened with william Wilberforce and everything else um, 200 years ago and that is where there's a clear difference between slavery and this issue of marriage that we've been talking about a lot over these weeks because And the reason we're talking about marriage a lot is because our wider culture is talking about it and the Church of England has been talking about it even this week. And the point is when you read the Bible, you will find consistently from beginning to end that marriage is between a man and a woman. And there are theological reasons for saying that. Marriage is a picture of God's love for his people. And we heard some of that in the first reading from Ephesians chapter 5. And if you change the picture, you change what you're saying then about marriage god's love for his people it is literally a gospel issue to change marriage but with slavery it is completely different christians who at this point 2000 years ago were very much remember on the edge of society so we associate christianity with kind of establishment and mainstream and at the center of empire and 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 then later you know the the, the government of a nation and bishops in the house of lords and all that kind of thing forget that At this point, 2,000 years ago, Christians are on the edge of society and Christians here are ambivalent at best about slavery and already pointing out the immorality involved in treating human beings as property in a world where that was totally normal and totally taken for granted, woven into the fabric of how that society works. And Christians are already kind of going, it's not that great. It's wrong to sell people. And the seeds are being sown for the anti-slavery movement to come. But that is not Paul's concern here. His his concern here is not about big social movements to undo this huge fabric of society. His concern is, is, is something about what does somebody who is actually a slave in their everyday life, who's come to faith in Christ, what does it look like for them in that situation to live as a Christian? That's the question he's answering here. And again, in the household, He's talking about which is a place of work on show in the world, not shut away behind closed doors. And so the point is what's going on here in verses 9 and 10 is his message to them is the same as it is to everyone else. Let the world see that Jesus makes you different. Okay, do you see? Whoever you are, slave or free, let the world see that the most important thing about you is that Jesus makes you different okay we're going to look now a little bit more closely at each of these groups that Paul addresses it is striking that he feels able to address men and women separately in our world today that is not a very popular thing to do but sex and gender are very much part of how God has designed human beings and pointing out that, that, that men and women are not in the same uh, not, not, not the same in, in at least some respects pointing out that saying that they're not the same in at least some respects is not saying they are unequal in value in some way or that one is more important than the other it is just saying that men and women speaking very generally are not exactly the same and therefore speaking very generally they may at times have slightly different needs now, that isn't a, a popular thing to say today, and yet, even in our wider culture, I think at times people do acknowledge this and see that the wisdom and value of, of being able to say that without denying an individual's individual personality and all the rest of it. So let's look at what he says. Older men, first of all, first 2. What is an older man? That's, that's a, a place to start, isn't it? <clears throat> you have to excuse these. Um... Oh no, the picture's not there. There was meant to be a picture. Um, anyway, I was about to apologize for the picture, but it's not there. So um, historians suggest, and you know, people who've looked into these uh, verses, suggest that an older man or an older woman at this point is anyone over the age of 40. Okay? Which certainly doesn't sound very old to me. But it's relative, that's the point. It's not old man, it's older man. Older than some other people. But there's a sense today that we worship eternal youth. And we want to put it off for as long as possible. And we fear old age and death beyond that. And we talk then about grumpy old men, don't we? In, in our worlds. Who are kind of past their prime and bitter about what they've lost. But Paul's vision for a person getting older is that they grow in maturity and faith and love and endurance. Now I can think of older men who who, who really fit that description and I thank God for them. And I can think of older men who really don't. Now I'm not thinking of anyone here, let me assure you. But instead of being hopeful for the future, they are bitter about the past. That's the point. And they think they deserved more. And they haven't grasped the possibility of being forgiven for whatever wrong they've certainly done in their life. It's just eating them up inside. And they haven't grasped the real hope that lies beyond decay and death. And they're bitter. And they drown their sorrows in bitterness and self-pity and substance abuse or whatever it is. But Paul says, let the world see that Jesus makes you different as you get older. In my my last church, I remember an older Christian man who moved into the area with his wife as he was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. And it was terribly sad, and we only really met a few times before he died. But I remember asking him one day how he was, which probably isn't a great question for a young pastor to ask someone with terminal cancer. But he looked me in the eye and he said... On the outside, I'm wasting away, but on the inside, I'm being renewed day by day. And that is what it means to be sound in faith and love and endurance through life's greatest trials. That is worthy of the greatest respect, isn't it? And showing a world that is terrified of death and doesn't want to talk about it and shuts it away in hospitals and hospices and the rest of it. No, Jesus makes you different so the watching world then says huh I don't get your views on the issues of the day as we've just been discussing but I've never met someone who gets older and more hopeful at the same time what is going on with that that is different that's attractive I'm intrigued tell me more do you see that's older men then as an older woman, do we get the picture for that? No, these pictures haven't come through. Never mind, it doesn't matter. You, you didn't need to see the picture. You're wondering what it was now, aren't you? <laughs> you have to wait. Well, they're old, older women. Just note the, the word likewise in verse 3. There are some differences in what he says to each group, but he does drop that word likewise and similarly, in which suggests the distinctions are not to be taken massively rigidly here okay so there is a general theme across all four of self-control which for older women here is expressed in terms of not being addicted to much wine although it's there actually with the word temperate for older men as well so it's not as he thinks women are sort of exclusively prone to drunkenness in some way but but more that self-control is the opposite of losing control through alcohol or whatever else it might be. But what he focuses particularly then on is the role of older, not old, but older women in teaching the younger women. So this is about modeling the Christian life between the generations. And there is, you see there's so much about the Christian life that is not taught but caught by watching. And this is so helpful for those times when we think, what can I contribute as a Christian? We're thinking about this a bit with the big catch-up that many of us are taking part in. But there's so much about being a Christian that isn't about official rotas and roles, but about informal sharing of life. And he's saying here to the older women in particular, help the younger women understand what living the Christian life looks like. So as a younger woman, there we go, got a younger woman. Again, when he says home, in our modern sense, he also means work, as we've established, because of what the household is. So he's talking about all of life. And perhaps, as we said before, the phrase that stands out is when he's saying that the older women need to teach the younger women, not just to love their husbands and children, but to be subject to their husbands. Now, it's a passing reference here. And that's why we then um, had Ephesians chapter 5 read out where he gives his most fullest, uh, his fullest treatment of what he says about this. And he spells out how marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. The gospel is a picture of marriage and marriage is a picture of the gospel. And in, in that passage he says, as you may have heard, wives submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. But then he says, and get this, he says husbands lay down your life for your wife like christ laid down his life for the church so this isn't be very clear about this this isn't about husbands getting their way over a doormat wife it's the opposite actually it's the husband saying i will lead in this marriage like christ leads okay and that means giving up my needs to serve you that's what jesus did isn't it he led by giving up himself and in that context then wives submit to their husbands that's what he's saying now what does that mean in practice that's the question is it that's the the burning question we all want answered is what does that look like in our lives and i could stand here and give my very male perspective on that but paul says Older women teach and model this to the younger women who are married so they understand. So if you're an older woman, do not undervalue the encouragement you can be to a younger woman. And again, it's, it's older, younger, not old, young. It's in absolute terms, it's just someone who's, you know, not at the stage you're at, but younger. Do not underestimate and do not undervalue the encouragement you can be to a younger woman who is wondering how to make sense of the stage of life that they're in. Now of course this isn't just about marriage and it's very important to say that as well. It will apply equally to those who are single and older women can equally encourage and teach the, and, and model the Christian life to younger single women and married women. But we, the point is we need one another. That's what he's saying here. In order to help one another, help the world to see that Jesus makes us different. Okay, so younger women, then younger men. There's a younger man. It might look like younger men get off the hook lightly. Because they just get given self-control. Do you see that? But it's almost as if he knows, isn't it? That's going to be enough for them. give them self-control to focus on, and they're, yeah, they're going to be busy for a while. And, you know, someone put it, it's like the fitness coach saying, you know, you're massively unfit, and you need to get in shape, and what you need to do is you need to go away and get fit. Now, that's a massive project. It's not just a simple, small thing. And actually, we live in a world where younger men are being enticed by all kinds of things that tempt their passions away from Christ. Whether it's the lure of pornography and the ease with which that can be accessed online, or whether it's the theories of, you know, one Andrew Tate, who is absolutely massive among teenage boys and young adult men who are taken in by his thinly veiled misogyny in his videos on TikTok. And self-control means resisting that. And speaking words of kindness where others speak words of hatred. And we might think that sounds weak and ineffective and what possible difference could it make, but this is about the world seeing that Jesus makes you different. And at that point, some will go, this guy's got something that I don't have and I want to know what that is. So if if you are a younger man and you're thinking, well, how do I make sense of these things? That's where you need to go and find an older man and say, please, can you help me? Please, can you help me make sense of these things that I struggle with at work and at school? You know, younger man equals teenager, doesn't it? Same for younger women. And as much as the older men and the older women are instructed to go and uh, help those, it's, it's okay to say, I need help with this. It could be from a parent. It could be from another trusted person to say, I need help with working through what these things mean in my life. Then we come to the final group. As a slave or employee, let me explain this. Obviously today, We don't talk about slaves because of the 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 big changes that have taken place in our in our world for which we give great thanks to god and it's not the same to be an employee but it's similar isn't it there are similarities if it's not exactly the same if if and, and if you look here if it was wrong for slaves to steal from their masters even though they were in an unjust situation they couldn't do anything about well it's certainly wrong for employees to steal from their employers isn't it and again this is an area where there is massive opportunity for Christians to be different from their colleagues and to be upright in the you know the things that everyone else will say oh just just you know you, you can bill double for that client no one will know no. but God knows and the Christian has an opportunity to be different and then people will say you know this This woman, you know, she's a Christian, and I'm slightly suspicious of her views, but she's the only person I trust around here to act with integrity when the boss's back is turned. She's the only person who gets on with her job when no one's watching. She's the only person I turn to when I'm really up against it and struggling. Why are we doing all this? So that the world sees that Jesus makes you different so that in everything we make the teaching about God our saviour attractive so don't listen to those who say we need to change our message and preach be yourself we can stick with the much less palatable much less culturally popular message of Jesus who said deny yourself provided we're willing to let Jesus change us so that people can see that jesus makes us different the problem will be if we're not really prepared to change and really we just want to behave like the rest of the world does and then we'll be thinking well how can i possibly have this unpopular message and that would be a very good question to ask because why should people listen to us if we're not living distinctively and differently it may lead to being sidelined or picked on in some way it may be costly but what will make people listen is when they see the difference Jesus makes in our lives they won't be able to ignore that and so the challenge is to be willing to be distinctive to let the gospel be on display in our actions our priorities our decisions at work and at school and everywhere else in between and we need each other we need each other to encourage each other young and old as we keep doing that So why don't we pause now and pray, let's have a moment of quiet to reflect on our own response to what we've heard. So, Father God, help us to see what it means for us in our individual circumstances to believe the good news about Jesus. And if we're yet to do that, help us to understand what Jesus has done, to see the difference he makes, to hear that message, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, what that means in our lives. Help us to believe that. Help us then to live differently, distinctively, so that the world sees the way that Jesus makes us different and is intrigued by that and attracted by that. And so that the very countercultural message that Christians believe would be seen to make sense and make a difference. And bring real life and hope in a lost world. and we pray in Jesus name. Amen.